You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Pierce, Chairman of the Department of Vascular Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. Dr. Pierce and I are going to be talking about peripheral vascular disease. And Dr. Pierce, tell me a little bit more about other treatments for peripheral vascular disease, up-and-coming newer things on the horizon. Well, some of the exciting modalities in the future for the treatment of peripheral vascular disease is uh, both uh, gene therapy and stem cells, uh, cell-based therapy for uh, this uh, disease process. Uh, If uh, one could stimulate new blood vessel growth, uh, one would put vascular surgeons out of business because they would recanalize or develop sufficient collaterals to release symptoms, and undoubtedly the collaterals would provide better long-term relief than artificial grafting would do. Dr. Jeff Isner, who was the former chief of cardiology at St. Elizabeth's in Boston was the first to suggest uh, gene therapy, and there are some programs currently in existence using VEGF um, to treat patients with claudication. VEGF is a fibroblast uh, growth factor, and it suggested that it it has improved uh, walking distances. At Northwestern, we've uh, just started two protocols using stem cells, adult stem cells uh, derived from the uh, circulating blood injected into the legs in both patients with rest pain and claudication. And uh, these are both under FDA protocols, and with the support of Dr. Richard Burt, who's a stem cell expert here at Northwestern, and Dr. Douglas Sordo, who just uh, recently became the director of the Feinberg Cardiovascular Institute, we harvest the blood cells from the cells from the bloodstream after giving the patient GCSF and cell sorters, and the uh, stem cells are given back in aliquots of about a million cells in each of about 18 different injections we make in the leg. And uh, so far, preliminary results of only about 10 patients have had pretty good uh, relief of symptoms. Two patients that were end-stage lost their legs, but it's uh, pretty promising and hopefully will be a longer-term benefit than uh, the gene therapy and even uh, the bypass procedures and stents we do. These therapies help to cause new blood vessel formation, capillaries, and larger vessels? Well, there's really two schools of thought. One school of thought is that they uh, encourage uh, collateral artery development and neovascular vasculogenesis and and vasculogenesis. And the other school of thought is that uh, it's an autoconparacone event. And I think it's the latter since the patient's symptoms, at least in my own experience, resolve rather rapidly after the injections of the cells within several weeks. And so it's hard to believe that new blood vessels are grown in such a short period. So this is providing some clinical benefit within several weeks. That's correct. And so it's probably a hormonal-mediated event in the leg itself. I think of a lot of these patients as having a lot of comorbidities and being more frail. Is it a well-tolerated procedure? It's a very important question. Is uh, myocardial events that may occur while the patient is on Nupagen or or GCSF, uh, during the period of uh, cell harvesting, the white blood cell count may be very high, and coronary thrombosis has been recognized, and so all of our patients are heparinized and have an extensive cardiac evaluation before this, and today we've been uh, just fine. There's not been any cardiac event, and the white cell count has not been tremendously high in these patients, but sludging of the white cell is one of the concerns. Any other systemic effects? Are we seeing fevers or chills, or this is something that otherwise is well-tolerated? It's absolutely well-tolerated. Uh, our youngest was 26, and our oldest was in the late 70s, and uh, been very well-tolerated with absolutely no systemic symptoms and no complications to date. 
Tell me about looking at other vascular beds, both, I would say, screening or case finding, uh, that is just in the general population or in people who have vascular risk factors. Should primary care doctors be looking for carotid disease? Should we be looking at the abdominal aorta? Should we be doing ankle brachial indices? There's plenty of commercial companies that are doing screening uh, in your neighborhood right now. And it is very controversial whether to screen uh, the healthy population or make subset analysis or subset screening. And when you look at our patients with uh, peripheral vascular disease, we already know they're, they're at high risk for other uh, vascular diseases. And uh, we also are actively and aggressively managing their risk factors. So one can make the argument that you're already treating the disease even though it's not found. I take exception uh, to abdominal aortic aneurysms uh, since there's excellent evidence that uh, men over 65 who've ever smoked and patients with family histories uh, over the age of 55 should have uh, screening done. And that was recommended by Medicare for the first-time physicals into to welcome to Medicare. They don't suggest that women should be screened, but uh, there is also good evidence that women who've smoked particularly if they have family history, should have screening of the abdominal aorta. That's a treatable disease, and in a large study done in London, it showed that the, the population who was screened had less deaths from ruptured aneurysms. So I think there's real good evidence to look for aneurysms. Now, as far as carotids, again, that's a very controversial area, particularly the treatment of asymptomatic carotid artery disease. At what level does one treat, and do you cause more strokes than not being too aggressive? And I think that answer is still uh, unanswered. I think screening is important for patients who've had prior neck irradiation. There's a very high incidence of, of uh, carotid disease uh, because of the radiation damage. But beyond that, it is very controversial and uh, still yet to be proven. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Pierce, Chairman of the Department of Vascular Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago, and we are talking about vascular disease other than coronary disease. There are studies, to my knowledge, that show that asymptomatic stenosis in the carotids over 70% in good hands do better with a procedure than without. Is, is that correct? The fairest part of that statement, it has to be in good hands with low risk because you lose the benefit quite rapidly if you have a stroke risk, whether your intervention is carotid stenting or carotid endarterectomy. If that exceeds more than 1% to 1.5%, you may lose all the benefit of surgery. So it's really important for the practitioner to know his surgeons or interventionalists to perform the stenting or surgery to make sure that those stroke rates are absolutely lowest. Otherwise, you lose that benefit in the asymptomatic patient. That's a, a difficult situation for me when I, as an internist, seeing patients knowing the, how devastating a stroke can be, uh, knowing that there is some data showing that even asymptomatic stenoses can benefit. So I guess that maybe the story is not completely told about case finding with carotids? Particularly, I see more patients that are very elderly in their mid to late 80s, and you are faced with a carotid artery stenosis that's asymptomatic and maybe 70 to 80 percent, uh, and you know that your surgical risk or your intervention risk in a very elderly patient is greater. And so you may take the uh, tact in that patient not just to watch and remind them about the symptoms. And I've got a number of very elderly patients with a number of comorbidities that 
we've decided together not to do that. Unfortunately, patients with both aneurysms and carotid artery disease are terrified of the possibility of either aortic rupture or stenosis, and so it's hard to allay their fears at the same time. Guess we'll have to uh, continue to uh, assess our patients individually, particularly on the carotid side, and make decisions with them about whether it makes sense to look for stenoses. In terms of people who do have peripheral vascular disease, how, how should we be following them in our office? Uh, do you recommend just going by symptoms, or should we be doing certain tests at, on, certain, uh, on a certain schedule? Fairly much on symptoms. Now, if we're talking about the lower extremities, I think the symptoms are slowly progressive enough that you can let the patient be the best judge of that. And patients, uh, at least today, are very educated and uh, sometimes even keep logs about uh, their various activities. So in that group of patients, I let them be the, the boss. And patients with aneurysms, depending on the size of the aneurysm, I'll have them return frequently for repeat uh, ultrasounds or CAT scans to look for growth. Those are patients, uh, the threshold generally is around five and a half centimeters, and there's leeway on either side depending on risk factors. But uh, generally those patients who present with small aneurysms, we watch every six months with CAT scans or ultrasounds for growth. As far as carotid disease, there's lots of uh, debate there, again, whether you should watch a low-grade stenosis. Uh, unfortunately, in the carotid circulation, like in the coronary circulation, plaques can rupture, they can go from a relatively small degree of stenosis, say 40% to 80% within a year. So following them for linear growth that doesn't make a linear increase in stenosis doesn't make too much sense in the carotids. But again, I, I do that sometimes for the patient's own well-being that we'll do a scan every uh, year or six months if they have sort of borderline lesions. So in, in the periphery, we can go by symptoms with the abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, an ultrasound or CT about every six months, and carotids, uh, we don't know a good guideline, but maybe to take a look annually. And is there uh, one thing or another that points you toward uh, doing, in terms of the abdominal aortic aneurysms, doing ultrasound versus CT? Well, ultrasound is good for uh, small aneurysms. The trouble with ultrasound is that if it's not taken at the same angle, you may see a great deal of growth. So you can imagine an ultrasound beam hitting a tube straight on. You'll get an accurate measure, but if you come at a slight angle, you'll see that it becomes elliptical, and the measurement may change dramatically. But as long as the aneurysm is small, the ultrasound is, is simple enough. But after that, I'd get a non-contrast CT scan, it's very accurate, uh, very well tolerated. It takes a few minutes of the patient's time, and you get everything you need. Let me ask you if I may one other about a medication, beta blockers. Your beta blockers have gone from being no-nos in systolic heart failure to being indicated and very good medicines for hypertension, now maybe not so good for hypertension. Where does that stand for peripheral vascular disease? Do we have to avoid beta blockers? I don't think so. There's been some argument that it may make symptoms worse, but I, I don't generally see that. The beta blockers have been of great benefit when they're undergoing surgery. Beta blockers have not been of any benefit in patients with aneurysms. Uh, particularly, propranolol was used for a while, and the side effects of it were so poorly tolerated that most patients stopped a beta blocker. Recently, there's been uh, some suggestion that Lorsartan, an old antihypertensive, may be particular benefit in patients with Marfans and some thoracic aneurysms. And that's really exciting information. That's uh, come from Hal Dietz at Baltimore. 
based on really good basic science showing that this old antihypertensive may reverse some of the changes in patients with ascending and descending thoracic aneurysms and maybe even those who get dissection. So it's it's really evolving field and we have a really good, a better understanding of those types of aneurysms. As far as the infrarenal aneurysms are concerned, uh, there's uh, some suggestion from basic science that doxycycline, vibromycin, might be a treatment for aneurysms because it inhibits uh, the enzyme metalloproteinases that affect aneurysms, and there's ongoing clinical research now to see if that's true. That would be of great benefit if you find a small aneurysm and you want to retard its growth. Maybe the use of doxycycline in the future will be the choice, but that that hasn't even undergone clinical trials. The Losartan is just starting some clinical trials, and there's good literature for it in those uh, other other conditions. That is very interesting and exciting. I want to thank Dr. William Pierce, who has been our guest as we've been discussing peripheral vascular disease. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.